Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today, I am so excited to tell you about our show. We are going to be doing a show on child hosting, the child hosting programs, what you need to know to prepare. I loved this show, and I think you are too. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. If the goal of the organization and the family is to give a child a great vacation, and holiday, then yes, it is cruel uh, to do that. But good hosting programs and families who receive proper training and are committed to the purpose of finding children who are waiting children um, permanency, then this is a great way to do it. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Nonprofit, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. As you probably know, Creating a Family has a Adoption Ed for Parents Center where we have 100-some-odd, one-hour downloadable courses that you can listen to on your phone or on your tablet or on your computer, and we cover just about every topic you can imagine uh, that you would need to prepare for thinking about adoption, adopting. could be used as part of your adoption education if your agency approves it. There's also lots and lots of courses available for post-adoptive families. Now, we have a lot of courses that I think would be particularly relevant to the topic of today's show, including two courses with the late and truly great Dr. Karen Purvis. I think that uh, her courses and her compassion and her helping, her ability to help us understand how to connect in a loving way with children who have come from hard places and who have experienced trauma, which most of the children in the hosting programs would qualify as, um, her 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 wisdom is just invaluable, and we would love to have you check out her courses. To do so, you would go to our website, creatingafamily.org. You would click on the navigation bar, click on online courses, and then click on, well, it, hover over online courses and then click on um, courses for parents. We actually also have uh, courses for social workers, CE, providing CE, which you're not interested in probably. So click on the uh, parent education and then click on Individual Courses, and you can search. Uh, both of uh, Dr. Purvis's courses are in the Attachment section, the Attachment category, and you can find them there. I cannot recommend them enough. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical, and we thank them for their continued support for making this show happen. In addition to Faring, <coughs> excuse me, we also have other uh, 
sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. And these are organizations who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support along the full continuum of adoption, from the beginning stages of thinking about it through the process of actually doing it, and and from our uh, point of view, most importantly, supporting families post-adoption in order to help them thrive. Um, And so... Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been doing adoption since, gosh, more than 50 years ago. They now have offices from coast to coast providing international adoption, domestic adoption, foster adoption, and, of course, their embryo adoption program, which is known as it's the Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program. We also have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited adoption agency placing children from around the world, offering home study and post-adoption services to residents of both North Carolina and New York. And we have a new gold sponsor that I want to tell you about, Children's House International. They are a nonprofit Hague-accredited international adoption agency with programs in 13 countries. They provide full services, including home studies in the states of Florida, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Texas, Utah, and Washington. That's Washington State. And they place children with U.S. families, uh, U.S. approved families worldwide. As I mentioned, you today we're going to be talking about hosting programs. This is such a an important topic. Uh, they're becoming more popular, and we get a lot of questions. Uh, about these programs. So this program is going to be intended for families who are considering it as well as people who might have objections to it. I think you will learn a lot as well. Our guest today to talk about this is Rhonda Jarima. She is the Executive Director of the California Offices for Nightlight Christian Adoptions, and she has been involved in hosting for a very long time. We also have Kelly Roddenbush. She is an attachment therapist at the Attachment and Bonding Center of Pennsylvania, and she is the co-founder of the Sparrow Fund. And she, too, has been not only a host mom, but she also has been involved with hosting programs for a long time. Welcome, Kelly and Rhonda, to Creating a Family. Thank you. Thank you so much, Don. All right. You know, not everybody who's going to be listening uh, to this show is going to know what we mean when we say uh, a, a hosting program. So, Rhonda, I'm going to give you the easiest and most basic question you're going to get today, and that is, what is a hosting program? What do we mean by that? Okay, a hosting program is basically where an orphanage uh, group or um, selection of children from various orphanages are brought over to the United States by a particular organization. And the children are then placed in homes that have been vetted by that organization. So they've gone through um, fingerprints and other training to prepare them to host. And the children come anywhere from two weeks to uh, six weeks on the various host programs. Yeah, okay, perfect. I'm glad you said about the length of time because we're going to talk at some point just in a bit about some of the variances that you see in hosting programs. But before we do that, hosting programs are fairly controversial uh, in the child welfare community. There are people who believe in them just thoroughly, and they think they are wonderful because of the results they get. And then there are people who believe that they are bad and bad, primarily bad for children. We received a question 
on Twitter, uh, uh, Mayday, so it's at Mayday Ask. Please discuss the cons of hosting. Does this place the burden on kids? Do host parents view view this as a trial placement without commitment? Um, and, and Mayday reach, does raise some of the concerns, so let's 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 jump into them uh, and, and talk about them in, in more detail. One, um, how is this? Uh, the, the basic gist of the Mayday's and other people's objections is. It's cruel to children. It's cruel to take them from most of these children are coming from institutionalized uh, environments, orphanages, and they're being brought over here, and they're getting to taste the good life, so to speak. And then after a short time, as Rhonda said, anywhere from two to six weeks, they then go back to where they were before. So is, is that cruel to children? Kelly? I think it's a great question to ask and one that I've heard a lot in relation to orphan hosting. Um, my response would be that if the goal of the organization and the family is to give a child a great vacation and holiday, then yes, it is cruel uh, to do that. But good hosting programs and families who receive proper training and are committed to the purpose of finding children who are waiting children um, permanency, then this is a great way to do it. Um, it's not the only solution, and sure, we can try all sorts of ways to help waiting children find families, but if that's the, the ultimate goal, and you can't uh, neglect the fact that, that orphan hosting works um, towards that goal. And in that way, then, cruel seems um, the inappropriate word to use for a program that helps children find families. Rhonda, do we know if it works? Has anybody tracked the success rate? And, and by success, I'm defining it for the – I realize it can, it can be defined a number of different ways, but, but if for this part of the discussion – I'm defining success as finding a permanent home, adoptive home for that child. Well, we haven't run the actual statistics, but I can tell you just from my consideration of the probably over 1,500 children that we have brought over uh, for the past 22 years, I would say easily the majority have found permanent homes here in the United States. Uh, as a result of the hosting program. In fact, three of our six children were on hosting programs. Um, our oldest daughter did not was not hosted in the United States, but was hosted uh, in families in Germany and Italy. Uh, and to her, it was a phenomenal experience. Um, and we adopted her not from the hosting program, but from uh, a different situation but but still she always spoke very positively about it as have our other children and the many children I've interviewed after they've been adopted uh, Kelly have you do you know of anyone who has uh, compiled stats um, uh, or, or can you address the question of is it successful at finding families yeah I I wish I had uh, statistics in front of me with something that's verifiable and I, I don't. Um, but in my limited experience compared to Rhonda, I've seen near 100% matching in the, you know, albeit very limited experience that I've had. But 
it works when you bring kids to America and have families who are committed to advocating um, and being a champion for that child. Um, it, it gets their face and their story in front of families who never would have known that they existed otherwise. And children who have been waiting oftentimes for years um, now have a chance uh, when before they were kind of lost in the shuffle. What are children told, Rhonda, before they come? Are they aware that they are, for for a lack of better words, on trial to be adopted? You know, the whole thing about being on your best behavior if you want to get adopted, that type of thing. Um, are they aware of all that is happening? Are they told um, the purpose for this? Are they told this is just going to be a camp in another country for the you know for whatever the duration of time is? It really varies. Some countries uh, do allow us to do some training with the children and educate them about the purpose uh, of the trip in terms of them spending time with families. Um, but it, it really is a, a variety of um, situations. So, some children do understand that they might be meeting a potential family, and other children are, are told that it's they're here for a vacation. Um, I, I think regardless, it, it really is not a time where you're talking about adoption necessarily with the child until after they return uh, back home, because you don't want the child focusing on that. That really is the family's responsibility, not the child's. Uh, the gotcha. child is there to have the cultural experience and to have fun and enjoy their time going to church, doing things, uh, you know, going to museums, going to the beach, doing things with the family, having that okay. family experience. All right. I think this also varies by country for sure, as Rhonda pointed out, but I think it also varies by program on who the, the host agency is who's doing this and what their relationship is with the particular orphanage because they have the opportunity to go in ahead of time, as Rhonda pointed out, that Nightlight has done, and maybe they get the opportunity to meet the kids and cast a vision for what this time will be, um, you know, that, that supersedes maybe some of the cultural things that, that they hear that we don't have control over uh, what caregivers are telling kids, whether that's right. uh, a visit of a team who comes in or, you know, and meets that child and the child feels on trial there, or if it's coming to America for a host program. And not only the caregivers, but, but we've also heard that the escorts who are bringing the kids over have been known mm -hmm. to uh, not say that what, what you would like for them to say. They, they may sure. be telling the children, you know, behave yourself, because if you don't, nobody's going to want you, that type right. of thing. Uh, and, yep. and there's just no way to really control that, even if that's not the message. No, but, there really right. isn't. Right. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting is that in many ways it seems to me that hosting programs are trying to replicate on a different level, different scale certainly, but the the time period that families have when they adopt through foster care in the U.S., those children are living in the home for at least six months. And so the families have an opportunity to know more about these children so that they're better able to make a good decision if they're the right family. And, uh, and we also have in foster care uh, child, meet, child meet, greet, meet and greet events, things like that. They're called different things in different states. 
where children come and they hang out and they play and adoptive parents come and we hope interact with them. And these meet and greets are also highly criticized because they're, you know, they're called meet shows and that surely the children know what people are there and if they don't get selected, you know, what does that do to them? But they continue to be held although some um, some states are doing it you know where the it's a virtual type of thing but they continue to be held most places that i know of because they work we as humans simply are able to connect better with other humans when we we see them and we know them and we have the ability to interact with them and that's fundamentally what hosting programs are trying to do or at least it seems that way uh, that way to, to me. Do either of you have anything to, to say on that, and then we'll we'll move off of this and go on talking about other things. Anything else? It's an I interesting found, point oh. to bring up. Sorry, Rhonda. I'll, I'll just say we have hosted several times, and in our experience, it was not a um, trial period or fostering type of experience for us. We agreed as a family that we were going to be champions for a child and work hard to be a storyteller so that we could advocate and help a child find a permanent home. We did not go into it um, considering adopting ourselves. Our home was full, and um, we were just serving a child as a family. Um, So a little different than like a picture of comparing it to a fostering situation to kind of connect with a child and, you know, for lack of a better phrase, what some critics would call try it out. It was not a try it out for us. Okay, yeah, that's a very good point. Go ahead, Rhonda. I also want to add in terms of the children feeling on show, we've had children that shared their – national heritage uh, by by sharing uh, various dances or songs um, at perhaps a church or a local cultural uh, program. And we've also had children introduced at various community events. And what we found is that having that opportunity to be introduced to a large group of people has really helped families come forward that really had no idea about children that were available around the world. And so it really gave them the opportunity to see, oh, wow, these kids just look, look just like kids here, or, gee, they, they throw a ball like we do. And it, and it seems surprising, but, but truly that is something that we've seen where the light goes on and families come forward that I, I can't tell you the number of families that have come forward. It, because they've met a child through one of these meet and greets that we we hold while we have the the children here visiting. All right, um, let's move into some of the differences that different agencies or organizations how they design their their host program. It seems to me, from what I can tell, there is a difference in the length of time the children are here. Rhonda already mentioned that generally the range is anywhere from two to six weeks. There is a difference on – hang on just a minute. I'm going to sneeze. (laughs) Yeah, I should tell the audience (laughs) that I am battling – no, I'm not. I am not getting a cold. I am fighting a cold. You are winning against the cold. I am winning against this cold. It is not (laughs) going to get me. Um, The the other thing that differs is what time of year 
the uh, uh, the hosting sessions are being held. And another difference, which Kelly alluded to, is there are some programs where they only accept families that are coming in with the intention that adoption is something they are interested in. Uh, And then there are other programs, the ones that, that Kelly had participated in, where they are open to families who are willing to, I loved her, her term, um, the term that we usually use is advocate for the child, but I loved hers even better, be a champion for the child. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Rhonda, can you think of anything that I've missed as far as kind of differences that uh, from the general hosting programs that exist? Uh, we we have had programs where the children have come here to play soccer. We had several soccer tours, and we also had uh, performance tours where children who had been selected because of various skills that they had came here and were were sharing those with you know at, at, again at, at public events. Oh, that's a cool idea. I actually wasn't aware of that. Okay. So another opportunity also with orphan hosting programs is hosting the caregiver or the chaperone to the children. Um, That's obviously a little different, but it's a great opportunity as a family to pour into someone whose life is caring for these kids. It's oftentimes an orphanage director or a nanny who happens to speak a little English, so she gets to come, but hosting that person, the adult, for that period of time is a great opportunity to make an impact on children who didn't get to come. You know, I, I so agree with you. Uh, I'm involved in a uh, an orphans uh, program where we lead groups to work at orphanages, and I really believe that the best, the, the most good we do, is to take a load off of the caretakers. Uh, and yep. to me, that is that's and that's good enough. You know, if that's what we do. And that's good enough. Absolutely. Um, And you know what? You bring up a really good point, and I think that really speaks to what the hosting programs are about. When you have a child for two two to six weeks or whatever, you're giving that child an experience that they haven't had necessarily at home of an intact family that is there just to love on them and, and nurture them for the period of time that they're in that home. So what is it what does it cost for the host families to participate in a host program Kelly I, and I realize this is going to be a range because there's a number of different programs so can you just talk about the give us a, a rough range of what it would cost for a family to participate Sure I mean I can speak as a as a host family um, and Rhonda I'm sure can speak uh, more as the professional in this area in different programs but in our experience with hosting from China, the program cost about $3,000. What you're paying for is all the paperwork involved in getting the child over here, their plane ticket. You're contributing towards the chaperone's plane ticket and expenses as well. And in our state, in Pennsylvania, we also had to be home study ready um, to be a host family, which I'm all for. So we had to go through some training and we had to have a social worker come out and do a home study and vet our children and do all of that too. So you are paying for um, all of that that goes into preparation to be a host family. That is why it costs what it does. And then in addition to that, a family needs to plan on the 
fact that you're not just paying for another mouth to feed then while the child is here. Um, there's a lot of other expenses that go into having a child in your home um, because I think typically a host family wants to do a lot of activities while the child's here is whatever is appropriate for that child and what that child can handle. So you might be going to the movies or going out to a museum or taking the child to a public swimming pool or, you know, whatever it might be that you want to do that's special. And that might be some additional expenses to pay for. But in our experience, we really didn't have all that much additional expenses because our church community and our adoption community around us really um, supported what we were doing. And we had closed donations and we had people who gave us money and said, here's some money to go out to eat and wanted to be a part of the mission of what we were doing through supporting us so that we could do it well. Rhonda, is 3000 kind of in the range or is it would it be safer to say two to four or two to five, something like that, or, or uh, what would you say? I think it really varies. Uh, I've seen it anywhere uh, from 1500 to uh, 5000 So it, it really does vary across the country and program. If you go forward and you adopt the child afterwards, does any of the money that you've spent on hosting apply to the adoption, Rhonda? It it can because it, many families either have completed a partial home study or a full home study in preparation for the hosting. So they may already have that, that home study completed so they don't have that cost, and that's done. And so then they can go ahead and proceed with just completing their dossier and uh, filing for the adoption. Excellent. And what age range of children are usually available for hosting. Rhonda, I'll throw this one to you. Okay. Um, I, I will tell you my preference and then what I see. I have seen programs bring children as young as five. Um, I think that tends to be very challenging for those children because they don't really understand everything developmentally. Uh, I, I think the majority of the children are older and range in age between 8 to 14. And uh, I would say the majority are in the 10 to 12-year-old range for the hosting programs around the country. Okay, yeah. And now let's talk special needs. Are these children primarily, and this I realize uh, is a very general question, but uh, from what you two see, are these children generally just children who are have not been adopted because they are older, and so if you that's not really a special need, but we, we call it that in, in the world of adoption. Um, so is there special needs simply the fact that they are older, or do they nowadays also have accompanying other special needs, physical or emotional or, or, or developmental? Kelly, what are you seeing in the hosting programs that you've been affiliated with? I think it really varies. There are some children who perhaps were never made paper ready, um, until an older age for, for whatever reason. It could have been that there was some question about what their special need was and so the orphanage delayed making them paper ready. Perhaps their situation was under investigation and so they weren't cleared to be made paper ready until at a later age. So sometimes it is kids who are primarily healthy whose only special need is that they are older. Um, in the most recent case that our family hosted, 
the children who came over in their group had minor special needs, but the orphanage told the agency that they didn't think anybody would want them. So they were not going to make them paper ready until the agency, which in our case was Madison Adoption Agency, they said, we want these kids to be made paper ready and we, we will get them hosted. Will you do it? And that's when the orphanage then said, okay, we'll make them paper ready in preparation for hosting. And had they not been chosen for hosting, those kids would still be there. They would not have been made paper ready. Yeah, and that's a, an interesting uh, argument in favor because that is the reality. I've heard that from other uh, hosting programs as well. So that is part of the reality in, in and when we were discussing the pros and the cons, it's impossible not to acknowledge that as well. Absolutely. Uh, Rhonda, any thoughts on what you've seen as far as the type of special needs that are more common in children who are coming for hosting programs? Uh, some of the special needs we've seen are children missing digits, um, uh, children with uh, cerebral palsy, a large number of, of kids from China that have come have had cerebral palsy of, of at some degree, um, but but and if some with allergies and and things like that. But for the most part, the kids tend to be fairly healthy and um, able to get around. And we did have one child that that walked with crutches, but again, he managed to get around really well. Um, so so again, we there they are children that are able to engage in activities and have fun and um, you know tend to do well with the host programs. There should be no children coming, and I'm sure this is universal for all programs, at least I hope it is, there should be no children coming who are medically fragile. You know, right. No children who are, this isn't a way for them to get medical care. That is not the goal of orphan hosting. So while a lot of um, host families do end up taking children to maybe see a specialist or get a PT assessment or something like that, there should not be children coming for the purpose of receiving medical treatment. You are listening to an interview with Creating a Family, and we were talking about hosting programs, how to prepare and what you need to know. Creating a Family is the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit. We primarily keep in touch with our community through our weekly e-newsletters. We would love to have you sign up, and you can sign up. We, we let you know kind of the latest developments as well as any new resources we have found or we have developed uh, it is totally free, so you just sign up at the top right corner of any page of our website, creatingafamily.org. Rhonda, we are actually, let me, I'm going to start with Kelly on this one. These children, for the most part, have been raised in institutionalized care or have spent a fair part of their young lives in institutionalized care, in right. care. Mm -hmm. And we know that um, institutionalized care is a type of trauma on children and can uh, and can affect their ability to attach and their emotional development in other ways. What are some What are some things that parents need to think about uh, about the impact and the influence of trauma before they decide on whether or not to become a a host family? I think that's a great question, and I think one of the first things that I would advise a family to consider is the current makeup of their family. If 
the family is an adoptive family already and has a child in their home who who already has come from a hard place in trauma, if that child's attachment is insecure um, and they're already concerned about the children in their home currently, they're probably not a good candidate for hosting. Um, so that would be my first advice, would be to consider the current makeup of your home and how your, your children, who you are already called to parent, how they will handle bringing a child in who has significant trauma and is under stress. Um, that would be the first step. And then I think the training that the agency does to help families understand um, what trauma looks like and what to expect short-term from a child who's just coming in for a short amount of time, what that might look like. Um, because, there, as we know, there are lots of ways um, that trauma can evidence itself for a child who's coming in for hosting. And if a family has the expectation of, hey, this is going to be hard, uh, there could be lots of things that we're looking at with misbehavior and not being able to communicate clearly, and that family still wants to be a champion for that child, all of them, husband, wife, kids, if everybody's on board for doing the hard thing, then I think it can work. But I think families need to be prepared that, yeah, it's going to be hard um, because trauma can look really ugly and be really hard, especially if you're only given that two- to six-week time period with a kid. Rhonda, what does trauma look like? It, that's impossible to say, of course, because it could cover any host, any, any, a large host of factors. But uh, let's talk about some of, the, some of the typical behaviors that you might see for a child who has experienced trauma in the past and is under stress now. Okay, so, so for children coming on tour where we have seen some responses that, that are trauma, as a result of past traumas, are children that, that really shut down uh, or are um, acting, um, having temper tantrums, um, maybe acting out. And so uh, those are times where we bring in the support staff to support the family and to pro provide them with additional tools and remind them of the tools that were given in training and um, do some sessions with the family to help them through that process and to provide the support that's needed for the child and even occasionally to uh, take the child out of that family situation if it is not working out and uh, place them in uh, with one of the respite families or with one of the um, staff support families. And another behavior that is not uncommon is uh, overly affectionate, a child who is inappropriately mm. affectionate and overly affectionate, and that is something to, to also, that's another way that trauma can uh, express itself. Absolutely. Um, I think we also have to talk about the possibility of, of sexual abuse. Children in orphanages are at, at high risk for being abused sexually. It's, as I say, children need parents, and children without parents are the most vulnerable children on earth. And they're vulnerable to a host of abuses, including sexual abuse, both by other children in the orphanage as well as adults who are in and around the orphanage. So, Rhonda, what would you tell families uh, ahead of time about uh, how, how do you prepare or do you prepare? Is, is there anything you can do to prepare for this possibility so that you may need to uh, protect your children? That are already in the uh, 
We actually have families do a uh, form that they go through with their children and uh, have a plan in place for bringing, uh, it's called the Family Safety Plan, and uh, it's in preparation for bringing a a strange child into your home. And so what we do is have them... um, you know, initially have the child in either their own room or in a room that is easily uh, supervised by um, an adult so that, uh, you know, the the children are monitored and and that they feel comfortable with them, Um, but also that no one is allowed to walk around without clothing. Everyone needs to wear pajamas uh, and change in a private area and uh, just just setting up boundaries for family members and the child coming in so that everybody knows what the expectation is and that everyone is comfortable. Um, so the bathroom doors are closed, things like that, that the child may not be used to in an orphanage, but um, uh, would, would be done there. And that, that there is no, um, there are no closed doors. Uh, while the child is is visiting other than when they are using the restroom or changing their clothes. And I think that what I hear you saying that I think is uh, is so wise is that it's not saying that all children who come are going to be sexually abused or, quite frankly, that all children who are sexually abused would in any way act out sexually with another child or an adult. That That is not the case, but it helps to go in prepared and take steps ahead of time that will mitigate any possibility of of it happening. Am I hearing you correct, uh, Rhonda? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, very good. Kelly, anything to say about that before we move on? Yeah, I think those safeguards are ones that every family should practice with every child who comes into their home, whether or not they are from a hard place. Um. So they shouldn't be very difficult to put into place for a host family because they're um, ones that you would want to practice if you had a a kid from next door over to your house. You just want to be a little bit more in tune to be looking for red flags because, yes, you're right, that vulnerable children are more at risk for that type of um, background, and that's something that we want to have our eyes open to um, and be able to communicate with our, our placing agency if we see anything that concerns us. But good agencies are also doing a lot of vetting of these kids, um, meeting them in country, and trying to determine which kids would benefit the most from a hosting program. And there are many kids that, that hosting programs might meet and say, you know what, we, we just have a little bit of a concern about them behaviorally or a concern about something we're seeing uh, you know, that may not just do well with a short-term type of program like this. And um, so a good hosting program might weed out um, some kids who who have maybe are more at risk uh, for sexual abuse and, and might have issues uh, with hosting. Rhonda, how much information are you given on the child before you decide whether or not to accept this child as a host child in your family? Oh, there again, it depends on... The country. Some countries uh, provide us with packets of information, and other countries will provide us with a birth date and a name. 
and uh, we we push and push to to get at least a basic questionnaire completed on each child. So we really um, request that any uh, program that that is supporting and and providing uh, children for consideration for the hosting um, provide basic information about that child, any medical issues, any social issues, uh, likes and dislikes of the child, any allergies, just to get a basic understanding of who that child is and, um, you know, just a bit about them as well as a photograph um, because that, that also is very helpful for the family who's making that decision. Um, it's, it's difficult when countries are not willing to give at least that basic information. And, and so that is something that we really push very hard for. Kelly, you mentioned that your family went through a full home study, an adoption home study, before Correct. you were uh, accepted into the hosting program. I, I believe there's some diversity in hosting programs as to how much um, is required. I think they all do background checks and things like that. Am I correct that there's that that not all programs require a home study, or, or are they all moving that direction, or do you know? I believe that that is determined by state. Is that correct, Rhonda? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Some states absolutely require it, and um, and then other states do not. Uh, where the states do not, I, I know some programs. Most programs that I'm aware of insist on at least what's called a mini home study, and so that's a, the fingerprints and a visit to the home to ensure a, a home safety check and, and, and meeting with the family um, by a social worker who regularly does home studies. So at least there is, you know, the vetting of the family. And I am hope, very hopeful that. Uh, most families are provided some type of education. All the programs that I have spoken with are doing are doing that. Um, Rhonda, have you, do you? Is it is it fair to say that at this point, if you're considering, you also uh, being a host family, you need to be be prepared to uh, to become educated, and the number of hours you know varies greatly. I suspect, but uh, it, it I would think most do. Um, families and families need to do um, training uh, for hosting, uh, and and I think the families that are open to doing the training uh, and really participate in it with an open mind and uh, a desire to learn end up having a really positive hosting experience. I've had other families who uh, came to the the host training grudgingly and don't really pay attention and you can tell it's it's really evident because they are the families that tend to have issues during the hosting because they really didn't participate um and, and the host trainings can vary from four hours to 24 hours um uh, you know it really uh the more and the more training that the family does even on their own to ensure that they're ready for this and um, knowledgeable about some of the issues that they might face, I think really it, it does make a difference. Kelly, you when you when your family hosted, and actually mm -hmm. Rhonda, probably the same with yours. Um, there were children already; <clears throat> you already had children in your home. Correct. Um, so I wanted to talk about how can we prepare if we have children in our home and uh, we are considering hosting. 
what are some things that you suggest parents do to make this a, a good experience for for the existing children in the home as well as the the child, the host child that's being brought in? Yeah, that's a that's a great question because in our experience I think it was as much a blessing for our family as it was for the children who are in our home. Um, we talked a lot with our kids. We had a lot of information about the children who we had in our home. Um, part of that is because I was um, very much for uh, agencies um, meeting the children before they brought kids over. Um, so we had videos and we had uh lots of pictures and lots of medical information. And so that helped us as parents to prepare, but also it helped us to prepare our kids. So we let our children um, be a significant part of choosing which child we were going to have in our home, um, which was kind of an interesting experience. The last boy we had in our home, they really wanted to have because he said he liked cats. Turned out he was terrified of our cats, but the part, <laughs> the fact that he said it in a video that his favorite animal was a cat, they said, okay, this is the kid we're going to have because we have two cats. Um, and the fact that they were a part of that decision made them fully invested in serving this boy because they knew they had picked him. Um, so that was a big part of the experience for our family. We talked to them about what might the first night be like. Um, what were we going to do when we picked him up from the airport? Who was going to go with us? And why would we make that choice? What was best for him? What was best for our family? Um, what would we do the first few days? What activities did we think he might like? But which activities might we wait on because he might not be able to handle them? It led to fantastic discussions with our family about um, what it means to be an orphan. One of our children is adopted. So it was a great uh, open door to help her understand her own story more. Um, we loved the prep as well as the hosting experience because we felt like it was a great opportunity to partner with our kids and understand what it means to have compassion on someone who needs a champion. Rhonda, it occurs to me that if a child in the home is adopted, that hosting could could be difficult for them, and yes. it could uh, be confusing for them, the distinction between permanency and, and, and between hosting and adoption and things such as that. What's been your experience with uh, children who, preparing children who are adopted and already in the home uh, for a hosting program? Is it very different from preparing children who are born into the family? I think it is. Uh, we actually had an experience uh, the first time we hosted. Our children had been home uh, close to a year and were pretty confident in our family and their attachment was, was going along really well. And I really um, didn't have concerns, but what we did is we sat down with them and explained that the children would be, the two girls that would be coming and staying with us would be with us for three weeks and um, we would treat them like family members, and uh, we would, um, but, but they would be returning back to the orphanage after three weeks. 
And so it was just a short period of time, and it would go quickly, and we would do special things during that time. Um, it was interesting that one of the girls that came, they, these were children from the same orphanage my children were from, and one of our, the visiting girls uh, informed one of my daughters that they were going to take her back home with them to Russia. And uh, <laughs> that did not go over well. And I remember my daughter stomping in the room saying, Mama, she says that she's going to take us, you know, back with them. And and I said, oh, no, sweetie, you are here forever. You are, you know, this is your forever family. And so we really had to reinforce that throughout the three-week period that we were their forever family and that they were going to stay with us and they weren't going anywhere. And I remember one of the the chaperones that came was joking with our youngest daughter and said, oh, I'm going to take you back with me. And she put her arms up and she goes, no, you're not. This is my home and I'm not going anywhere. And I thought, okay, the message has gone through. Loud and clear, she gets it, that yes, this is her family and she is staying here. And I think that's why it's important for families not to host too soon after they adopt. You really want to make sure that your attachment is really strong with your adopted child before you proceed with hosting because you don't want that to be a period of confusion for your child. Rhonda, in Kelly's case, they were clear as a family beforehand that they were not open to adopting the child, that they were um, intending this to be, to use her words, a champion for the child to help the child find a forever family, not theirs, but but, uh, to advocate for that child outside of their family. If you are an adoptive family, if you are a host family, and you have this child with the consideration that that you where you are considering adopting this child how much of that information excuse me would you recommend sharing with the children already in the home beforehand or, or during their hosting time we actually uh have the families um understand along with their children that they are not to talk about adoption until after the tour after the the host program has left because otherwise it becomes a topic of conversation among the children and you really don't want that that's a really uncomfortable place for anyone to be you don't want the the child that to be what's on the forefront of their mind so so what we do is we educate the children and the families that 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 is not a discussion that goes on during the, the tour but then after the tour that's something that that can be discussed and um but well, that's a bit of a different a different approach if i can okay. interrupt yeah, we uh-huh. we did talk about adoption as a family um because that was part of why we were doing what we were doing and our kids had to catch that vision so it was not an awkward discussion for our kids we did not tell them that we were going to treat this child as family either we told them that we were going to love him well but that we were going to be a sprinter for him and that we were going to run the race and hand the baton off to someone else and so they were part of the mission of hey what can we do to be a storyteller for him in a way that honors him but helps move him towards permanency and that was important that's what they were on board for so while i am in complete agreement that discussion of adoption should not happen with the child in your home because that would not be appropriate. I do think 
it is appropriate for a family hosting to be on board as a family to discuss what that might be. Now, of course, if a child in your home is very young, they don't need to be a part of that discussion, perhaps. But I do agree that a family needs to be united in a vision for what this is for that particular family, whether it is they're looking to adopt or they are in it to advocate. And Kelly, I actually agree with you. I think I, I was perhaps misunderstood or oh, what, okay. what I was trying to say. And okay. that I do think the family needs to be on board. I just think that it's important that the, that discussion not take place w- during the tour, that okay. it's done uh, you know, before yeah. and after the hosting program. I'm not even sure, just as I'm thinking about that, uh, if and Kelly, this is a different situation for you. You were clear that your role was going to be the sprinter, the storyteller, the advocate. Right. But if your family is considering adoption of this child and you're going into it with that consideration, I think more care needs to be taken because both for the fact of not necessarily wanting the discussion to take place around the child, but also you don't want your the children in the home to say, you know, this kid's getting on my nerves, let's don't adopt them, Mom. You, you don't want that to be taking place either or to the child. You know, and that was a concern. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I would hope that a, a family who's doing this would be trained and to know kind of what's appropriate for that and that they would parent their kids well to know, you know, hey, if we're on board with doing this, this is what it looks like, which, you know, fostering a child domestically is, is similar in that way of like, hey, we're not going to talk about in front of the, the child that, well, we might adopt you if you're good enough or, you know, you just took my Legos or messed up my creation, and now we're not going to want you. Of course that would be inappropriate, absolutely. Um, I would hope that the, the family going into this would, would properly you know, uh, coach their kids with what's appropriate and what's not to say in front of the child. Well, and given the fact that the child is going to leave, the discussion of if, you're, if the parents in the family make the decision that they're going to go forward with the adoption, then that discussion could the discussion with the family could take place, the children could take place after the hosting time um, in, a, in a way that would be more uh, perhaps uh, appropriate for the, age, the ages of their children. Yeah, um, I'm, not, I'm not tied to black and white rules with it myself. Maybe, mm-hmm. uh, maybe I'm disillusioned, but I would, I'm all for families making this type of choice together. I mean, these are older kids who are coming for hosting, and if you have kids who are older, the part of the dossier process would be interviewing them about their opinion of the adoption anyway. So mm-hmm. if parents make that call that they, they can have that private conversation while the host child is still in their home, I, I think it's okay. I wouldn't draw a black and white rule that they absolutely cannot do it. I would say well, definitely not point. in front of the child. If they're but, going through a home study, it's already going to have been. If you're yes, enough, that's part of that discussion. Yeah, yes. that's a good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. What about disciplining a uh, a host child? How does that differ for a child that a, a child that you are raising in your and have have a history with versus a child that's coming in and you feel and is misbehaving in some way and you feel the need to host? I mean, to need to uh, discipline. Uh, Kelly, thoughts on disciplining a host child? Man, this was hard. (laughs) I'll tell you, it was hard. It was hard for a couple reasons. One, this wasn't my son. So I didn't have the right to discipline him as I would my child. Um, Secondly, 
he had no English. So, you know, I had to, I had to depend on body language and tone um, to, to try to make a point to correct. And that was not easy to do. Um, but again, my whole family had a vision for what we were doing, and that was extremely helpful because I would say to my kids, hey, guys, it is the, all of our job to model to him what our expectations of him are. For our most recent hosting experience, the child had no experience riding in a car. So sitting down in a car seat with a seatbelt on became a major struggle. So our whole family, I would say to the kids before we got in the car, hey, guys, I need you guys to get right in, put your seatbelt on, and model how to do this well and not fuss for me because it's all (laughs) of our job to try to coach him through what the correct expectations and behavior are. Now, it was still really hard, um, and I, it took everything in me to be patient when he would get up and stand up in the middle of my van while we were driving, and there was nothing I could do. Um, I brought in people who could speak Mandarin, and I would have them try to explain it to him. Um, but I also just took deep breaths and said to my kids, hey, I need you guys to help me and remind me that we're being a champion for this month, and if it's hard for mom, that's okay because we can get through this together. And it was part of the blessing of of serving as a family because they could coach me some. Yeah, you were, you made them a part of the absolutely part of the the issue. You know, let me. uh, We're not going to have time to talk about disrupting birth order, but that is an issue that uh, that does come up um, oftentimes, where the uh, host child is older than a child, and by disrupting birth order, that's what we mean, uh, is older than a child already in the family. Creating a family has extensive resources uh, on uh, on this. We have courses on this, including a wonderful course that we did with uh, Dr. David Brodzinski uh, on uh, the disrupting birth order. We have resources, tips from parents who have done it, how to make it work, things that you need to be aware of uh, before you make that decision, and all of that can be found <clears throat> on our. A to Z adoption resource page, which you can find on our website, creatingafamily.org. Hover over the, the adoption tab and the navigation menu and click on A to Z resources, and then we have an entire section on disrupting birth order. So rather than take time today, I'm going to, in this course, I'm going to have you go to uh, our uh, uh, website, or you could take another course. We have at least two, I believe, on disrupting birth order, including the one I just mentioned with Dr. David Brodzinski. Um, One of the interesting issues that has been brought up, uh, which I find fascinating, is oftentimes, as uh, Rhonda, as you have said, the children are tweens and teens when they're coming over. And so social handling social media with a host child and some of the uh, uh, some of the issues that I've heard families run into is the child, uh, which I'm not sure how the child has a phone, to be honest, but the child, it, it could very well be that the, the child either borrowed a phone from a, uh, one of the, the host siblings or uh, they were given a phone, I'm not sure, or just getting on the family's computer. That may be how this happens. But posting and and, and uh, one uh, was a, a young teen girl who claimed she had found an uncle which the uncle wasn't an uncle, and uh, here and uh, are, are posting and, and sending messages back to children uh, in the orphanage back home. 
so it's a it's an interesting dilemma. It's a it's a modern dilemma. It's a, this is a um, uh, 2000. Uh, this is this century's dilemma for for host families. So Rhonda, let's talk a little about that. Are there some things that parents should think about for this two to six week period that can uh, for helping them think in advance? Uh, because I think most of the problems I've heard about are were from people who had never even thought about it. You know that that potential right. problem. So, right. yeah, anything quick on the social media that we can do? Absolutely. Uh, we really recommend that our families limit uh, electronics, all electronics, as much as possible and really focus on uh, hands-on activities, baking, going to a park, kicking a ball around, rather than being on social media. So it really means uh, a, a low el- electronics or no electronics rule for the entire family. And uh, we've seen that work uh, amazingly for families who took an electronics holiday during that period and have found that they really enjoyed doing other activities. And yeah. it's been an, a, a really nice experience with the child. I've had families that did it both ways who said taking the electronics holiday just made it a totally different experience and really a very positive experience. So it's hard with, with the kids that come with phones or their own electronics or think that while they're here, that's going to be a gift that they get. Um, and that's why we educate the families and educate the children beforehand that we really prefer that this be as electronics-free as possible. Um, with some of the older children, uh, they are sometimes allowed or need to certainly touch base with their orphanage um, on a weekly basis. That's pretty common for many countries, and so we usually do a Skype uh, meeting for that. But in all other regards, we, we really try to limit it as much as possible. All right. Kelly, you've mentioned a number of times advocating or championing, being a champion for your for the host child. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. What does that look like? And and let me mention that even even if you are your intent is to adopt the child, um it is still you might still want to advocate for adoption in general or more importantly for children that have that are other children in the program who are not going to be adopted or other uh, friends of your child or whatever children who have sure. behind. So let's yeah. talk about advocating and what it looks like. Okay, yeah, I think it's a misconception that maybe to be an advocate, you have to have a large platform and a blog and lots of followers on Facebook in order to do it well. I think it's more the heart behind it and to be able to partner with the people who have the platform. So in my case, I do blog and I do have a platform to share, so I utilize that. But I also had our best friends in our community. I got them to host too. And that mom does not have a blog and does not have a a big following on Facebook, um, you know, in the adoption community to pull from. So I was able to advocate for the child in our home, but I also coached her with how to advocate for the child in her home, and I did a lot of the legwork. So what that means is taking a lot of pictures of the child as you're doing family activities, pictures that honor that child, not pictures that would show um, a negative side or guilt people into wanting to adopt, but just painting a picture of who this child is and what he's like, what she's like, Um, sharing stories. 
That's the most effective way to advocate for kids, not just explain, oh, he likes to play ball and he likes to go on the swing or, you know, likes to do puzzles. It's telling a story of maybe a, a lot of excitement when he completed a Lego project and jumping up and down and us being able to cheer with him, you know, giving a story in a context so families can read it. And like Rhonda mentioned earlier, the families would see, hey, you know what, this kid isn't just a kid on a file who has a diagnosis. This is a child who has lots of experience and lots of desires and dreams, and they start to be able to imagine what it would be like to have this child in their family. That's the best way to advocate. And if a family is not able to do that through their own platforms, they should partner with an agency who is able to do that and who is committed to advocating for these kids. Yeah, beautifully, beautifully said. Um, Rhonda, anything else you would add about how families, uh, Kelly has mentioned blogging and taking pictures uh, and, and telling stories, all great. Um, anything else? I think it's really important to for families to be out in the community and as they're with a child and chatting with friends and neighbors, those people are seeing the child. I know when we walk through the neighborhood, we're, we're introducing the child to other uh, neighbors and friends and as we're walking around in the community. And I think as much as you can do that, as much as you can publicize uh, different events that uh, the program is hosting or um, just uh, being out on social media yourself or um, I, I think just sharing as much as you can. I, I think uh, I would, Kelly's I'd like to add one more thing. Um, I would I would give a warning or prep families that some of those outings may not work for every child. Our child that we had most recently was very, very shy. And so we didn't do meet and greet type of opportunities. In fact, our agency wanted us to do one, and I declined and said, you know what, I'm going to make the call for him and say this isn't a good idea for him. He's going to be overwhelmed, and it's not going to work. And so they excused me from that event, knowing that I was making a call of what was best for him. But one other way that was kind of a neat way to advocate for him, which works for a shy kid, is he did not like pictures being taken of him, but he loved taking pictures. So I gave him a camera, and I let him document from his view, what his day was like, what his life was like. I think he took 2,000 pictures we had on the camera in the end. But I was able to share his pictures and say this is what he sees when he's in America. And it was so endearing and sweet because people could see what he was interested in capturing, which was very different probably than what families might imagine a child who grew up in an orphanage in China might be interested in. He wasn't interested in the museums. He was interested in our faces. And he was interested in animals. And he was interested in our yard and little things in our home and all of his Lego creations. We had a gazillion pictures of the things he had created. But that was so endearing to be able to see the world through his eyes. And it's a fantastic way to advocate for kids who are here. That's a great point. It's also a really good point, too respect the temperament of the child um, because right. it would be sure torture for that child to be the center of attention everywhere he goes probably. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, Rhonda, if you make, let's say you are 
fostering, not fostering, if you are, you are hosting with the intent that, uh, that adoption is, is a strong possibility. If you decide that you want to adopt this child, what is the typical process like after the child? Because the child, let's be very clear, goes home, goes back to the orphanage at the end of the anywhere from two to six weeks, whatever length of time. You don't then keep the child. The child goes back to the orphanage. Just walk us through very briefly what that process and time frame is like after the child leaves until the child is brought home in, the, in an adopt to be adopted by you. Okay, certainly. Uh, the first step certainly is to make your desire known that, that you want to adopt. That's number one. That's really critical that you let whoever the agency is that would be uh, providing the, the program to adopt that child, that, that, they are, are it, that they know that you want to adopt. The next step is to complete a home study. And then you are, then the family needs to start get their dossier going for uh, the country, and and oftentimes doing those conjointly at the at the same time, so that they're really moving as quickly as possible through the process. Uh, once you've made that decision, you don't want to lag at all. You really want to move as quickly as possible to ensure that that child is returning back to your home as soon as you can. So it's working with the agency to complete that documentation, get the immigration paperwork in, and um, then depending on the country, um, once the dossier is submitted to the country and accepted, then the, then the family would be going to that country um, once their immigration documents are approved and uh you know depending on the country either making their first visit second you know starting their visits with the child in country or going to finalize the adoption in country um so that can take anywhere uh from about four months if they are coming to the process with a completed home study they certainly are going to be able to move much more quickly um, and with uh, families that need to start their home study and their dossier once the, the tour has left or, or during the, the middle of the hosting process they are going to you know be able to move fairly quickly to completing that adoption but it really depends on the country as to how mm -hmm. long it will take yeah, and and we can guarantee it will be longer than you would like. That's just the reality. Absolutely. <laughs> it always is. It always, it always is. is. It always is. Kelly, can you suggest some questions? And, Rhonda, get prepared because I'm going to rotate between Kelly suggesting one <laughs> to you and back and forth. So okay, great. Su suggest some question, a question that a family should ask at the beginning to help them discern whether or not they are the right family to be a host family at this time? Sure. I think first the family just simply needs to ask, can we be a sprinter for this child, which means putting a whole lot of life on hold for that time period of two to six weeks while that child is in your home. That child needs to be your family's top priority during that time. And some families can do that and some families can't, and that's okay. So the first question is, can we make this child a priority as a family for this time period? Okay, excellent. Rhonda. 
I think it's important for the family to determine are we able to understand that this is a child from another country that doesn't have the same background we do and being open to this other culture and allowing this other culture into their home and not getting caught up in the fact that that child does not follow the same rules and and mm-hmm. we'll we'll likely learn some of the ways that that family runs but but is coming with a totally different mindset and so i think the big key is are we flexible enough to to bring this into our home and and be willing to change and and do things in order to help this child feel comfortable during the time they're with our family. And I'll underscore the word flexible. Kelly, <laughs> another question. I would say to ask yourself, what supports do we as a couple, in the case of a married couple, and do we as a family need to line up and have in place before this child comes? Whether that's your church community or neighborhood what do we need to do in advance to support us so that we can do that well? And that's going to look very different for different families. That could be signing the child up for a class at the Y, you know, so you know you've got some physical activity and lined up to give you a break and the kid can get some energy out. Or it could be um, making sure you've got clothes, you know, donations here of clothes, or, or maybe a church who's just saying, hey, we support you and we are going to encourage you, we're going to make some meals for you, whatever it might be. What do you need to line up in advance so that you can, from the get-go, be as set up as you can to be successful as a family? Okay, excellent. Rhonda? Um, I I think it's important to have a schedule uh, so that there is a basic schedule for the period of time that the child is here. So it's not that you're trying to come up with things at the last minute, um, but that there is something basic planned for each day that the child is visiting and that um, the emphasis is on the family being together as much as possible and, and having that experience for the child. And I'll throw one in. Uh, assess the children in your home and and try to do it with a clear eye for whether this is a good experience for them or whether it will be uh, if you know your child is insecurely attached um, or you know that they're struggling with adoption issues, maybe now would not be the time. So clear with a clear eye, assess the, the, the children in your home um, for their ability to handle this. All right, last one. Uh, each of you, I'll, I'll circle back to each of you. Kelly, one last one with you. One last question I'd say is if you are um, committed to doing this, to choose an agency wisely who is committed to minimizing trauma to the child and encourages ongoing relationship and connection, uh, which is a way to minimize trauma, you will get a sense from a hosting agency what it is that they're about and how have other host families done with them and that's important for your own family and for the the well-being of the child that you minimize trauma and have an ongoing connection when whenever possible well and let me also throw in uh and uh, and make certain that your agency has people of have has staff available to support you if you run into problems. Absolutely. That's one of those ways that they can minimize trauma both to the child yeah. and to you <laughs> to as a family. family. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, that's huge. My own trauma there. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Rhonda, your last one. 
I think it's really important to look at your family situation and and try to keep things very small during the the period of hosting and not try to fit too many things in that period of time. It's not a time to go and hit every amusement park and and try to fit in seeing the world in that period of time, but but really to keep your world as small as possible and uh focus yeah, that's on, great advice on the family. And, Rhonda, just before, would you also address the issue of if the child is going to be here over Christmas? Because that does, there are definitely programs oh, that yes. over Christmas time. So just if you could address that, because I think it is so darn important. Um, it's really hard for families not to go overboard on Christmas uh, with a host child, but I really remind them that this is a child who who has very few, if any, personal belongings, and that it's best to give of your time and to do activities as gifts versus giving things and certainly not giving electronics that are just going to go back and be fought over and, and cause issues, but really to focus on interactive gifts, Legos, puzzles, uh, activities that you can do together um, to, to really minimize uh, the the excess craziness and really keep things small. And so I also encourage families, if they have children in the home, to give those children um, the majority of their gifts either before or after the holiday, again, so that the children are all getting about the same amount of, of gifts, but, but that they are more interactive gifts and, and gifts that they can use together. That is such a great suggestion. Um, and if uh, and if you're going to give other gifts, give them uh, beforehand or afterwards, depending on the age of your child. Thank you so much for both of you for being with us today uh, the, to talk about uh, hosting and, and preparing yourself. Our uh, our interviewees, our experts were Rhonda Jerema. She is the executive director at Nightlight Christian Adoptions, and you can get information from her. Uh, They have a hosting program. You can also ask questions, and that website is nightlight.org. Our other guest was, or is, uh, our other interviewee, I should say, is uh, Kelly Roddenbush. She is an attachment therapist at the Attachment and Bonding Center of Pennsylvania and the co-founder of the Sparrow Fund, and you could reach out to her at the Sparrow Fund website, and it is sparrow-fund.org, sparrow-fund.org. I appreciate you uh, for being here and talking with us. We, we certainly have learned a lot, uh, and I, uh, for the, those of you who are listening, I hope you will consider uh, hosting and uh, go into it with your eyes wide open. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today, and I will see you next week. And now, an ad from Dad. All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. 
and complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.